0: Verses 2 to 13 and 30 to 32. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 720 in your worship Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does, does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
1: I used to always say I love the sound of rustling pages when we read the scripture, which is true. And then I would say I love the sound of people greeting one another when they say hello at church. And that's certainly still true but I never thought I would be able to say, I love the sound of dogs making noise in church, but I do. It reminds me of what a special place uh, this is and how thankful I am to be able to serve here um, at the Buffalo Chip. I wonder if you remember the first time you ever looked through a microscope. You remember, maybe you were in junior high or elementary school, or perhaps you were late to the party and didn't do it till you were in high school, took that science class as late as possible, but you maybe remember doing it. And if you remember doing it, I would guess that it was a rather eye-opening experience, to say the least. Perhaps you did something like what I did. You took a uh, drop of iodine and you put it on a slide. You took a toothpick and you scratched the inside of your cheek. You swirled what you got on the inside of your cheek in the iodine, you added a cover slip, and you put it under the, uh, under, under the microscope and opened the, it's called an objective, I had to look it up, the objective lens, the objective, to the widest power, probably four power, and you looked at it and you began to see, wow, look what's been inside my cheek all this time. You were seeing, as you focused in on there, things which were always true but which you never knew. You were seeing at a deeper reality the truth of things as they really are. And you began to see, perhaps, as you turned the objective of maybe the 10 power or so, uh, you began to see the shape of the cells inside of your cheek. And maybe you saw as you looked or as the teacher explained it to you that there was a cell membrane around the outside. And that there was cytoplasm and mitochondrion and nucleus inside of it. And yes, I did not remember all of that. I looked it all up. (laughs) But I do remember seeing that. And some of you perhaps have an image of seeing the cells inside your body in a fresh way. It is an eye-opening experience, to say the least, without the microscope versus with the microscope. Looking at that that uh, that, uh, that slide, it's just nothing or maybe a little bit of something, a little slobber on it or something, a little tiny bit of something. But there's something deeper, and that thing you're looking at is not an illusion. It's the truth. It's the real way things are. I say this as a start because that's what's been going on in the Gospel of Mark in chapters 8, 9, and 10. We looked at 8 last week, we're going to get 9 this week, and 10 next week. Well, what was happening there is the disciples were having their minds blown by the truth. They were seeing things as they truly were in a way they had never seen them before. They, just as with regard to the microscope revealing the truth about the nature of our cells inside of our body, they they began to now see the true nature of things in the world. And it blew their minds. And it still does even today. You know, in the whole gospel of Mark, uh, the, 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 the writer of Mark, Mark who wrote the gospel was trying to help us to see the truth about this amazing guy who just burst on the scene, called followers to him and said, said astounding things, did miraculous things, and ultimately paid a price of death, which should have ended his life, but didn't end his life. And he's trying to see, this is the true nature of things. As unbelievable as this is, this is how things really are in the world. In the first half of the book, Jesus bursts on the scene announcing the kingdom of God. The time is fulfilled, he says. Uh, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then we see him quickly moving around from place to place. We observe him as an incredible teacher, an incredible leader, an incredible miracle worker. Demons flee at his command. Sickness vanishes at his touch. And nature itself responds like an obedient or disobedient child be quiet, he says to the waves. And immediately, they're quiet. Who is this guy? The disciples are asking. Everybody's asking. And if we don't know the Bible story, we're asking it too. Who is this guy? Is he just another prophet or teacher or failed revolutionary? Who is he? The only one that seems to know who he is are the demons he casts out. They say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He says, be quiet. Get out of here. Go. Go. Who is this guy? Finally, his disciples begin to see. And as we move up into the 8th chapter, we see that Peter asks the Jesus asks the very question of his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples, says, "You are the Christ. You are the Messiah." By this he means that he is the long-awaited promised deliverer, the promised king of Israel, the anointed one, which is what the word Messiah meant, anointed one. By the way, Messiah and Christ are the same word. Christ just is the Greek way of saying Messiah, and it comes from the Hebrew words. It has to do with the anointed one, which is the one that got the person that was referred to as the king, the anointed one, the leader of Israel. So when he says, you're the Christ, he's saying, you're the true king. It's not Caesar. It's not Herod, whose palace would have been over the hill from where they were in Capernaum, right? It's you. You are the Christ. It is as if, for the first time, they're seeing their cheek cells through a microscope. It's altogether new. It's brand new. See, to some, he was a carpenter, just a carpenter. To others, he was another traveling itinerant teacher. To a few, he was Elijah or John the Baptist. But the disciples were seeing something more wonderful, more exciting. He was the Messiah. He was the King of Israel, the true King of all the earth. This is what they saw as the objective was turned to perhaps 10 power. They saw something clearer than they'd ever seen before. But just like a teacher turning the objectives of the microscope to a greater for ma- greater magnification, Jesus quickly blows their minds again. There are more wonders to behold. They've only seen a glimpse of who he is. The true nature of things is even greater than that. Yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he is the promised deliverer. But the, he will demonstrate his kingship in the most unkingly way. As soon as they recognize who he is, he says, let me show you what I'm like. Excuse me, my throat's a little sore today, so. <clears throat> it couldn't have been that we spent two hours singing I'll Fly Away on the float yesterday. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> yes, I'm the king, and now let me tell you what is on the program, what's on the agenda for me as your king. How will he demonstrate his kingship? He says in the very next verses, this is the found at the end of chapter 8. He, the Messiah, will suffer. He, the Messiah, will be rejected. He, their Messiah, will be killed. He, their Messiah, will rise again. This is just, I hate to say it blows their minds, but it really does. It's like, what? Wait, That's not what kings do. That's not the way kings act. That's not the kind of revolution that actually gets anything done. That's a sure way to kill the revolution, kill the revolutionary leader. Yeah, no way. Peter, as you call the one who had just had the glorious experience of recognizing who Jesus was and being encouraged and blessed for it, Peter now speaks on behalf of the others, and he rebukes Jesus on the spot. Never, Lord. No way. No to which Jesus even more forcefully rebukes Jesus. And he who had said a moment before, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, now says to him, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. He looks at him in the eye. Because he recognized that Peter was trying to bring worldly attitudes towards kingship into the true kingship that he had come to offer. Peter is trying to place on Jesus the typical expectations of the world. That's why Jesus said, you are setting your mind, you are not setting your mind, rather, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm the heavenly king, not the human king. We're, not gonna, we're gonna do things different around here. Peter, as I said, is trying to place the typical expectations of the world on Jesus, the king. He knew that a king conquers. He doesn't suffer. A king overcomes, he doesn't succumb. A king commands, he doesn't submit. But Jesus says, no, Peter, that is not the true nature of things. You and all this world are living under an illusion. You don't know the truth about things. Your way of thinking, Peter, and this is important for us to get, your way of thinking, Peter, is precisely what is wrong at the heart of the universe, heart of the world? It's precisely the things, the thing which destroys your essential humanity. I have come to restore your true humanity. And to do that, I will, I will need to allow your false, perverted humanity to have its course. You're going to need to kill me so that I can rise again and give you a new way of living. Like a seed, he said in another plant area, planted in the ground, I will bear no fruit until I'm planted in the ground. But when I am planted in the ground, I will bear fruit. You see, Jesus knew that in his kingdom, a true king used his power to serve others, not to, to be served by others. Jesus knew that in his kingdom, in the way things truly were, in the way the universe was supposed to function, a true king would use his wealth to benefit others not to simply benefit himself. A true king he knew in the the way the world was meant to live lays down his life for the sake of his subjects. And that is exactly what he is going to do. He will use his power to serve. He will use his wealth to benefit others. He will give his life for the sake of others. He will allow the ultimate evil of the world to work its worst on him so that he can divest it of its power and out of the grave come out new to new life. That's what he's going to be doing. He's going to try to remake this world the way it was meant to be made, and he will have to die to do it. (laughs) It's an unbelievable, and yet it is. It's an unbelievable truth, and yet it is the truth. Jesus is saying, my messianic mission will be fulfilled. My program will be accomplished. My true glory will be displayed, not in a palace in Jerusalem, but on a hill outside its gates. I will stretch out my hands, and I will die in order to rescue this lost world. Only way, only in this way, can I help you to see the true nature of things. It is an overwhelming and disorienting vision, both for Peter and his contemporaries, but to be honest, even for us today, we also are quick to attribute worldly wisdom into the kingdom of God, and we get it all mixed up. Yeah. Perhaps this is why Mark takes such careful pains to paint this picture in vivid color for us as he rapidly takes us to the cross of Jesus. Because in this 8th, ninth, and 10th chapter, he is moving directly to the hill outside of Jerusalem. And in the 8th chapter, as soon as Peter recognizes who he was, he's no longer involved in much public ministry. He begins to take the disciples by themselves and to teach them. He wants them to understand the true nature of his kingship. It's so difficult for them. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They only are able to see it after the fact. And Mark, who is writing, of course, after all this has occurred, is trying to help us to see both the truth about who Jesus is and what his mission was all about, but also to see how difficult it was for his disciples to even observe it. Yeah. So three times in these three chapters, he reminds us of the nature of Jesus' messianic mission. We looked at one of those last week. We're going to look at the second one this week as we take a look at it. Three times the disciples are disoriented and confused. Three times he explains and illustrates what he means. Three times, however, the disciples fail to see. Only after his crucifixion and after his resurrection does it finally become clear to them as they see what Jesus has been saying on all along. Well, we live two millennia almost beyond His resurrection, but for us too, we have a hard time keeping that in focus because we live in a world which says, I found out the only way to the top is looking out for number one, and that's me, I'm looking out for number one. Nobody remembers that song? Somebody has to remember that song. All right, thank you, man. And that's the way the world works. That's the way the world works. And if you step in the way of it, you might find yourself a little crucified, (laughs) a little misunderstood. And even in our own selves, because we have the remnants of the old nature still firing up inside of ourselves, we keep thinking, I better get it now. It may not come to me later. I know I might not feel good about doing this later, but I'll ask forgiveness. I'll get over with. I don't realize the damage I'm doing to myself right in the middle of it. I'm destroying my own humanity. And yet the power to do that, the desire for self-gratification, the desire to get what I want, the fear that God won't take care of me, all of those things fire into us so much that we too need to this reminder that the way of living is a way that seems like dying The way of gaining is a way that seems like losing. The way of uh, showing leadership is not by being served, but by serving. It's the nature of things. It's the true reality of life. And it's hard for us to notice this in our families. You know, if everybody else just did what we wanted to do, it would be just fine, right? In our families. It's hard to notice this in our culture, in our job. It's so hard. But Jesus has made it crystal clear. Not only must he give his life to serve the world, so too must his followers. So let us hope and pray that we can gain a clearer vision, that our eyes can be opened. If you remember this 8th, ninth, and 10th chapter, some of you will remember, what does it start with? But a miracle of a man whose eyes were only partly opened it took two tries. Why? Because they're. Try- it began with Jesus saying, don't you see? Don't you see? Mark is wanting them, us to see that it's hard for us to see. We've got to get that into focus. We've got to get the right objective on the right spot so we can see the true nature of things. Yes. Not only for Jesus and his mission, but for us and our mission in the world today. For as I said, Jesus made it crystal clear. Not only must he give his life to serve the world, but so too must his followers. He said as much in the verses which precede our text, And now, as if to accentuate the point, Jesus continues to turn the objective lenses of our microscope to a greater magnification. He will now let us see the true nature of His earthly and heavenly identity. So, six days after that first uh, uh, revelation of Peter and, and Jesus, it says He takes them up into a mountain. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, He took the first string up there with him. He wanted them to see Peter, James, and John. And they went high into a mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And the clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him, Elijah and Moses, and they were all talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's it's good that we're here. Well, let us make three tents, or three tabernacles, we could say. That's the literal word. One for you and Moses and for Elijah, for he did not know what to say. When Peter didn't know what to say, he just said something. <laughs> you know, that's just what he did. He was terrified, it says. Uh, he did not know what to say. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The voice of God. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, uh, excuse me, so they kept this, uh, they, uh, as con- he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Well, what's that about? So they kept a the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead must mean. And they asked him, well, why does it say that Elijah first must come, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, uh, and he says, Elijah does first come, But how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus takes them up onto a mountain. And on the mountain, there is a glorious thing that happens. He is turned, they are trans, he is transfigured before them. We're not really sure what all of this means. I mean, Some people are very sure, but we just don't know. All they can say is he got so bright, no one can make clothes that bright. I think we were seeing the true humanity, not just the divinity, but the true humanity, the glorious nature of who Jesus was, right? I think we were seeing the brightness because Moses and Elijah had the same thing and they weren't divine, right? They're not divine. Jesus was divine, so what we're seeing is more than just a revelation of His divinity. I think we're seeing a revelation of His true, glorious humanity, perhaps a revelation of what you and I will look like someday, when we have bodies like His. We don't know how this all comes together, but we're seeing this tremendous vision, and then there's a, a cloud that happens. Yes, there is a vision of glory there on the mountain. There is a, uh, there is a mountain, a vision of glory, a cloud a voice. If we think about this, we have to know that Peter and uh, uh, James and John had to be thinking at that moment about another mountain, not Mount Horeb, which is probably where this was, uh, but rather, I mean, Mount Hermon, where this probably was, but rather Mount Sinai, where there was a mountain, where Moses went on a mountain, and there was a tremendous vision And when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was bright and shiny because of having been in the presence of God. And there was a cloud, and there were the ten words, and we're seeing a new vision of Jesus on the mountain. But this is a different kind, a different kind of vision. This is a vision of Jesus for who he is and and what what he's all about. He takes them up there onto the mountain, and they're talking with Moses and Elijah, all three of them together. And and we know this has to be a true story because Peter says such stupid things that would never have been put into a story if they hadn't really been said. Lord, let me make a tabernacle, right? Let's just make a tabernacle. Why would he want to make a tabernacle? Because he's thinking about Mount Sinai. What do they do but come down from the tabernacle or down the mountain, and they built a tabernacle according to the Lord's instructions. He's thinking this is the way it is, but it's not the way it's going to be. Not the way. In fact, the Lord says don't tell anyone until I am risen from the dead. Yes, there is a tremendous glory that is being expressed right here, but he wants them to see that this glory will be fully expressed when Jesus raises his arms on a tree, and the glory of God is revealed through the death of Jesus Christ. Yes, He goes on. There's more. I can't take time to talk about it. I I didn't have time for um, um, Dominique to read it all. But we see they come down from the mountain. They have challenges down to the bottom of the the mountain if you have your Bibles in front of you. And then in the 30th verse, in the 30th verse, well, we see when they come down the mountain, the disciples were trying to do a miracle. They couldn't do it. We just see the ineptitude of of the disciples as they're trying to figure this out and a part of Jesus' frustration. And it says in verse 30 that I want to get to. Then they went from there and passed through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know. And others are walking quietly. They don't want want crowds to follow Why? For He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days, He will rise. But they did not understand His saying and were afraid to ask Him. This is then now the second major telling that Jesus gives to his disciples of exactly what is going to happen to him. He wants them to know that part of being the Messiah is to give his life for his people and that he will be killed and that after three days he will rise. He tells them they don't know what he means by it, but they know something's going on, and I didn't have time to print this, But but it goes as, and they went on to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for they had, on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child up in the midst of them. And standing and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such as this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Here we see again the disciples are trying to import onto Jesus, their Messiah, the worldly expectations. They want to get in. They want to know which of them is the greatest. And we know this. This will come up again next week as we take a look at it again in the 10th chapter. They're vying for position. They want to see which of them is going to be on the right or the left. They're arguing about that. And Jesus says, friends, we've got to have a talk. I've been telling you I'm the Messiah. I've been telling you I'm going to suffer. And I also want to remind you that you need to stop getting so full of yourselves, right? Lay down your life just as I will. Receiving a child is like receiving me. Simple. I don't know if you have the pleasure of watching young children much in your life nowadays. We enjoy seeing our two grandchildren. And we love the innocence there. There's a song that my granddaughter was singing that I'm going to teach you guys because it's a good one. I didn't, I, my, her, her other grandmother um, was, put it on Facebook, which is how we all communicate nowadays, right? I'm not on Facebook very often, but once in a while I see stuff. And she's sitting there thinking, and he set and he, and he came and he set the captives free. He kept the captives free. She's singing a song she was hearing at church. Set the captives free. And she turns around and says, Grandma, the captives are my favorite part. That's a good sermon. That's what he came to do. to Set the captives free. And he did it. Not by trying to argue who's the greatest, but by giving his life giving his life for us. And if we want to follow him, we need also to lay down our lives for him. We need to let go of those things in our heart that so desperately cling to our hearts. They've got their way inside of our hearts. We need to let them go. And it will feel for some of us like death. Letting go of habits, letting go of relationships, letting go of plans, letting go of all of these things which you know are all just about me and my fears about my future. And instead laying down my life for him who laid down his life for us. The Apostle Paul reflected on this text in the book of Second Corinthians, chapters 3 and chapters 4, and I close with a few thoughts related to all of this. He's speaking about Moses when he came down from the mountain carrying the stone. Let me read a little bit of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Verse 18, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He says to us that as we behold the glory of the Lord, our hearts are changed, our countenance changed. We begin to be changed into His likeness. And it will be that self-giving likeness that he demonstrate for us. That's why it says just a few verses later in chapter 4 and verse uh, 6, for God who said, let light shine of darkness, out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, there's so many sermons I'm passing over in the middle of these verses. He sees in Jesus the glory of God revealed in such a way as the power it took to create light out of darkness. That glory has been revealed in Jesus, and that face, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What face? The face of love, of self-giving love, the face even broken, in tears, giving, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. We are knocked down, but not knocked out. He goes on to talk about the suffering that they go through. So well, Jesus, who suffered for us, invites us to follow him and to be willing to do whatever it is he has for us. One of my favorite holidays of the year, believe it or not, is St. Patrick's Day. And it's not for the reasons that most people like it. You're glad to hear that. Patrick is a hero, lived about the 3rd century A.D. He was born in Great Britain, before Great Britain really existed much, very early, 3rd or 4th century. At 16, he's not, he was not Irish, St. Patrick was not Irish. At 16, he was captured by Irish pirates. And stolen from his home and brought to be a slave in Ireland. And he, uh, it was terrible. For six years, he was enslaved. And uh, somehow during the middle of all that experience, he had a vision of God. Going back to his early childhood in the uh, Christian family of which he had been a part, Ireland was totally pagan, totally pagan at that time. And somehow God allowed him to escape and to go back to his family when he was 22 years old. But in the midst of that, God spoke to him and said, I want you to become a priest, and I want you to go back to Ireland and tell them about me. So he became a priest, and he went back to Ireland. And literally, the whole country became Christian because of the witness of St. Patrick. Not everybody, of course, but its religious roots go back. And here was a guy who had suffered at the hands of these people who now, because of the transformation of his heart, he then went back to those Irish folk and became one of them so that through him and his sacrificial love for them, that whole country could be changed and transformed. It's a beautiful story. It's the story of St. Patrick. So remember that next time you raise a glass on March 17. And ask yourself whether you are willing to give yourself or people the same way that Patrick did. Let's have prayers as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're so very grateful and thankful that the glory you showed is the glory on a cross. It's the glory of self-giving love. It's the glory of welcome. It's the glory even of being willing to suffer. Thank you that the apostle Paul was able to live that kind of life in response to Jesus. Thank you that Peter was able to do it. Thank you that people like Patrick were able to do that. Help us to be able to do that too. Help us to begin by laying our lives before you and trusting our hearts to you. And help us to continue by living a life of sacrificial, self-giving love, as you taught us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.